Hello, I'm Tom Bruise from the podcast Bruised Feelings, where I give you my hilarious takes on movies you'd never see. This week, come read my zip-popping review of the English horror movie obscurity, Terrorizing Dudley. See, the catch is you have to watch the film before you can understand the trench-like wit and savage bite of my review. Uh, still haven't quite found a workaround for that part, but listen, the movie's only 99 minutes, it's on Netflix, you watch it some night when you can't sleep, then you listen to my nine-hour podcast and you get all the jokes. Everybody wins, right? April Fools, that's not our show. That's the Inverse Delirium, Jeffrey Welchman's podcast where he very politely made fun of uh, this genre of shows. So thank you very much. Screw you. And uh, very funny stuff. You can hear myself and Eric Siska, the heartthrob of Bad Movie Podcasts, from his show We Hate Movies. We're doing a bit, episode 57 of the Inverse Delirium podcast. Today's special show, we have uh, stuff from other people that they've submitted or I asked for that I liked. Bonnie and Maud, a new podcast about movies in general, and uh, they do a great job. They're going to talk about Carrie in a live version of their show. And we have Sully Baseball. Paul Sullivan has a daily podcast about baseball. Normally, I would say, shoot me first. But uh, he's, he's a good friend of mine, but he knows a lot about movies. He's been on the show a few times. And uh, he did a really cool thing about baseball in movies, the best baseball movies. And uh, fuck Field of Dreams. But there are a lot of good ones on the list. But he's always interesting. I love that guy. And uh, Justin Stahl, who listens to her show, submitted a review of the Birdemic book. Uh, James, who directed Birdemic, wrote a book about it. And you can tell it's got to be half as good as the movie. The movie's inept. How bad is the book? And we find that out. All right. Hey, we're going to do the show probably every other week, if not three weeks in a row and one week off. So if you hear it's off, we'll be back the following week. So I'd love to hear if you have any comments. If you want to listen to older shows, listen, go ahead. Go through the list, see something you like. Uh, tell me what you think. You like the interviews better than the reviews? Reviews better than the interviews? And uh, if you want Netflix for free so you can watch House of Cards and Arrested Development, go to our website and sign up for Netflix, Netflix, Netflix through our site. And you can donate through a PayPal. If you like any episode, put it up on, you can like it on Facebook, but put it on your Facebook page, tweet it out, uh, Reddit, something. All right. Use your help. Anyway, enjoy the show. Let me know what you think. And if you're in Hollywood area on uh, Saturday the 13th, Horrible Movie Night is presenting Deadly Prey, which we reviewed with Rob Schraub on the show, and we'll have a link to on our site, but check that out. That's in Hollywood, uh, horriblemovienight.blogspot.com or on Facebook. And it's in Hollywood at uh, Meltdown Comics. All right. Should be fun. Actually, that's where I saw the movie for the first time. All right. Enjoy the show at ProudlySense, ProudlySense.com. Yada, yada, yada. Facebook page. Monotone voice. This is me excited. Enjoy the show. Following the so-called World Tour 2010 of Birdemic Shock and Terror, 
director James Wynn put pen to paper to write several rough paragraphs and called it a memoir. His bio claims that he is known as the master of romantic thrillers. Trademark! This memoir consists of only about 240 sentences. There are more pages of photos than text in what is more accurately called a pamphlet than a book. Despite the small amount of words, the movie's title is mentioned a whopping 83 times. Wen promises a birdemic sequel in 3D, a Broadway musical where electronic eagles and vultures will fly like Spider-Man, and an online game. Wen mentions Hitchcock and Hollywood over and over as if he has any connection to either. He tells us that his eagles and vultures became mutant, toxic, and flammable due to global warming. He needlessly explains how he had very little money to make his most famous movie, and he never comes to terms with the fact that people like to watch his movie ironically. There are moments of boasting. I have a history of discovering beautiful and talented actress. After seeing at least a thousand headshots and hundreds of auditions, I discovered Whitney Moore. Whitney is a beautiful, gifted, and talented actress. I would not be surprised if Whitney is casted in a Hollywood movie and the next hot blonde actress. There are moments of childlike praise. Alan Bagg did a great job. Alan is my friend. Whitney Moore did a fantastic job. Colton Osborne did a great job. Patsy Van Edinger was awesome. Patsy is my friend. Damian Carter did a fantastic job. Rick Camp does a superb job. Rick is my friend. The rest of the cast did a terrific job. However, he also chastises hopeful actors wishing to make it big in Hollywood. A lot of them are not willing to pay their due. Some are infatuated by the movie business. Some are fakers. Some will not make the sacrifice and dedication in order to have a chance at that elusive Hollywood movie break. Personally, I believe that most of them will quit and go home because of money. Though his delusion is on full display throughout, it is made most clear when he describes how environmentally friendly the movie has made him. Birdemic has inspired me to live a green lifestyle. Now I drive a hybrid car. I will buy an electric car. I have gone solar in that I have installed a solar power system at my house and I use solar battery chargers to recharge my cellular phone and laptop computer. Some of the lights in my garden and front yard have solar panel on them. My clothes are made from bamboo material. I have a computer mouse and keyboard that are made from bamboo, which acts as a carbon sponge that absorbs excess carbon dioxide. This helps to reduce global warming. Oh, Mr. Wynn, you are truly an inspiration. To get your own copy of this picture book, I mean memoir, it retails at only $19.99. Studios of WWHTZ, the flamethrower. It's a nearly famous, highly outrageous, but never ever contagious. Geek Revolution Radio. Are you tired of commercials and grandpa's old radio? Uh oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Everyone is a geek about something movies, music, sports, sharks, TV shows, comics you name it, we're talking about it. Listen to Geek Revolution Radio every week at geekrevolutionradio.com or subscribe to our podcast feed in the iTunes store. And that is a scientific fact! Uh Geek Revolution Radio! A proud member of the Bobo Broadcast Network. This is Bonnie and Maude, the film podcast with Xenia Yarosh and Eleanor Kagan. 
I think one of the things about the beginning of Carrie, maybe the first half hour, is it's really not a high school movie. It's a women in prison movie. Because you've got these girls, you've got the, the classic women in prison trope of the sexy shower scene, of the humiliation, you've got the forced um, workout of the girls when they're forced to... Uh, There's the woman in charge. Exactly. And, and, and you have this whole thing of who's the prison matron, maybe Carrie's mom is the prison matron in her way. There's a lot of slapping. Yes, lots of slapping. But in addition to high school being hell there is this potential of high school of elevating you and if you rise in the ranks and become popular and become the prom queen, you know, things will be okay and things will be right and your previous life will be corrected. So that's also really interesting, like the potential of it. Since you guys have brought up the prom and the sort of familiar tropes of high school and Let's talk a little bit about how this is a particularly American horror movie. Kate, your specialty is world horror cinema, correct? Yes. There's something about Carrie that captures this American sensibility from the 70s. You know, there's the Christianity, there's the prom, there's popularity. This, like you said, Ksenia, the American dream of like getting to the top of your social clique, um, rising out of your ranks. So it wasn't very popular overseas, was it? No, it's, well, I don't know about the box office popularity, but one of the interesting things is one of the first ways I look at a movie is I kind of look at its original form, and then I see who knocked it off and what did they knock off about it. Like, what were the resonant themes in this movie? And one of the interesting things about Carrie, as opposed to, say, The Exorcist or, you know, a movie like Mad Max, is that there are virtually no foreign knockoffs of it. There's no Turkish Carrie. Um, there's no Italian carry. It's a movie that really had to take place in the petri dish of Americana. Should we talk about the other two girls some more, Chris and Sue? Chris was fascinating to me, particularly in the scene where she's trying to get Billy, uh, John Travolta, to agree to this plot um, uh, with the pig's blood at the prom, and she is going down on him in the car, somehow also saying his name at the same time, and then... (laughs) She's a ventriloquist. (laughs) And then her words, like her her mid-coital words are, I hate Carrie White, and I think her hatred for Carrie actually kind of turns her on a little bit. Yeah, remember the way she licks her lips right before she pulls the cord? Mm -hmm. Like... There's definitely something yeah. there. And the like weird sexual excitement when Billy is slaughtering the pig to carry out oh, their plan. Yeah. Chris very much fascinated me. <laughs> Interestingly, the actress who played Chris, uh, Nancy Allen, went on to marry the director, Brian De Palma, in the late 70s. And she was solely acting in Brian De Palma movies where she's in very uncomfortable roles. There's a lot of weird uncomfortable projection in that role. It's like projection and projection is a hall of mirrors because it's her projection of the hatred of Carrie White and it's his sexual projection. And, and if we're not all uncomfortable right now, then <laughs> I'll have to work harder. <laughs> you can't have somebody who's into um, this cosmic horror, this horror of the unknown, without him being a little fucked up in the head. You know, you, you can't have a movie like Carrie without it being about... Um, men being a little uncomfortable with women. Mm-hmm. It's an uncomfortable movie, and I think that's why it's successful. Uncomfortable, but I still find a lot of power in it. I mean, mm-hmm. um, the menstruation imagery is so rife throughout. I mean, when she's 
drenched in blood at the end. You know, the screen itself even goes red as her becoming a woman is the source of her power. It does maybe stem from this place of uncomfortableness, but I kind of like it. I kind of like the imagery that comes from it. I mean, growing up and becoming a woman as seen through teen films is supposed to be this terrifying thing. And this is, you know, even though it's ultimately tragic, Carrie is sort of, you know, taking control of her body and herself and her situation. Well, I think one of the articles um, that uh, you ladies had been talking about was uh, Kimberly Pierce talking about how she saw Carrie not necessarily as a horror movie and a tragedy, Mm -hmm. but as a superhero origin story. Hmm. Where it's this woman who, um, through this strife and through this horrible situation, comes to find that she possesses great power. And ultimately, it's a ruinous end. But at the end, Carrie is the HBIC. She's the head bitch (laughs) in charge of that town. She wrecks that town. That is her decision to do that. And I I think that's something that, you know, um, certain viewers may find it scary um, and intimidating. And other viewers, you know, I remember the first time I saw Carrie and I'm going, F, yes. (laughs) Finally, you know, it's it's very, there's something empowering about that. Yeah. There's so many movies where, like male characters cause so much destruction and they're celebrated. And boys will be boys. And it's awesome. And like, yes, when I watched Carrie, I was like, there were definitely moments where I was uncomfortable, you know, like she killed so many people and like, did she really have to set the school on fire? But yeah, when you look at it from another perspective, she had been beaten down and there had been so much damage done to her. She needed to take control. And yes, that meant some innocent people died but no one's innocent in high school (laughs) it's okay (laughs) do you like bad movies no i love them well if you love bad movies i bet you'll enjoy reading about them oh boy hey i'm matt and i'm xenia and we are the editors of i love bad movies a great scene about bad films like cool as ice barbarella purple rain troll 2 teen wolf 2 the garbage pail kids death wish 3 roadhouse Demolition Man? Dune. Each issue of I Love Bad Movies is full of essays, comics, and illustrations about all these really great bad films. And the best part, it's only available in print. So when you're done, you can pass it on to one of your weird friends. There are five issues with themes like... Love and sex. Before and after they were famous. Children's movies and movies not for kids. And visions of the future. Featuring award-winning artists, writers... Film nerds, critics... Comics and weirdos. Well, they're all weirdos. We also do live events. Like Bad Movie Night screenings and variety shows. And if you're interested in contributing, get in touch. Oh, hey, Gili is on. Ilovebadmovies.com. Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to Sully Baseball Daily. Now, I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. Now, let's talk a little bit about baseball and the movies. There have been... There have been some really great baseball movies over the years. I will say that between 1984 and 1989 was that five-year stretch was the greatest era ever for baseball movies. Now, of course, you can say there's a little bit of bias there because that's when I was a teenager. And you're most impressionable when you see things from when you're a teenager. But hear me out for a second. In that stretch of time, you had The Natural, Eight Men Out, Bull Durham, Major League, Field of Dreams. Those five films came out in that five-year stretch. Now, 
the natural kicked off that great era. You can't pick I mean you any list of the greatest baseball films of all time are going to include all those films that I just mentioned. The Natural, which came out in 1984, kicked off the great era, and it was directed by Barry Levinson, coming off of Tin Men, and who was going through a wonderful stretch in his career. Uh, How is that film not a Best Picture nomination? The nominees that year were Amadeus, Soldier's Story, Passage to India, Killing Fields, and Places in the Heart. And yes, I just did that from memory. Now, Amadeus is a great movie, and I would argue is actually better than The Natural, and deserved Best Picture. But, I mean, like, come on, The Killing Fields and Soldier's Story and Places in the Heart are just classic pieces of Oscar bait. No one remembers those movies. I saw them and I don't remember, but The Natural stays with The Natural's part of American culture. I think Redford's great in the film. Glenn Close got an Oscar nomination for the movie. Uh, I thought Barbara Hershey, was, who's terrifying in the film, should have gotten at least some consideration. And Wilford Brimley is great. Well, that was, if, those were the salad days of Wilford Brimley. Between The Natural and Cocoon and The Thing and a couple other films I can't think of off the top of my head, it, those, are the, those are the times to be Wilford Brimley. So The Natural, I love The Natural. I watch that all the time. Eight Men Out is, I think, the most underrated baseball movie of all time. That received no nominations. kind of came and went when it came out, but it's received a ton of respect in retrospect there. It's a great-looking movie, especially because it was a low-budget film. Amazing cast. John Cusack. David Strait there and John Mahoney, they should have all been nominated. John Sayles absolutely should have been nominated as, as writer and director, and he's great as an actor in the film, too. Fabulous film. Um, Field of Dreams was, was a Best Picture nomination. It didn't get any acting nominations. I think James Earl Jones should have been nominated. He was, he was wonderful in the film. And let's not discount Kevin Costner in that film, because, I, you know, that film doesn't work if you don't believe that he's really hearing those voices and the way that he acts in that scene, let's not forget Kevin Costner used to be awesome. And he, when he reacts to those voices and he sees the players coming out of the cornfield, he reacts perfectly. He is so believable in a film that if they played it any differently, it would have fallen completely apart. Now, speaking of Kevin Costner, and baseball movies, Bull Durham. I think Bull Durham is one of the great gifts that has ever been given to American cinema. I love Bull Durham. I think Bull Durham is one of the greatest comedies ever made. Not just baseball comedies, but just comedies, period. They're so, that's so dense with laughs. The three leads, and, and more than three, there's, the, all the characters in the film are just so wonderful and memorable. It's one of those films where if someone has two or three lines in the movie, they're memorable. There's no wasted parts. There's no wasted people in that film. And it got a screenplay nomination at the Oscars, but no acting nominations. Really? I mean, Crash Davis, Annie... Nuke, you're not going to nominate any of those three? I would have nominated Trey Wilson, who played the manager. Now, there is a little bit of justice in that Costner, Sarandon, and Tim Robbins all eventually won Academy Awards. But they won them for dramas. 
As someone who worked in comedy for years and years, I always felt that comedy's got the short end of the stick, as it were, come the Oscar times. You show me better comedic performances that are real, that are real performances, not over-the-top clownish performances, but Costner's completely believable. So is Sarandon. So is Tim Robbins. I saw that movie in Westport, Connecticut when it came out in 1988. And there was a moment in Bull Durham when when, uh, Crash Davis goes to get uh, the pine tar for his bat and the Ernest Bat Boy, this little, this you know, wide-eyed Southern kid, hands it to him and says, "Get a hit, Crash." Kind of like the Bat Boy coming up to Roy Hobbs in The Natural, and Kevin Costner just looks at the kid and says, "Shut up." The place gasped and then erupted in the one of the biggest laughs I've ever heard in my life. And it was that moment the film was saying, "This is not the Natural. This is not a fable. This is a story about." basically working stiffs playing baseball. And one of the wonderful things about Bull Durham is it doesn't end with the game-winning homer. It doesn't end with a moment of triumph, really. Because at the end of the film, Nuke has been called up to the majors. Crash got cut and actually finishes the season not as a member of the Durham Bulls, but as a member of the Asheville Tourists. And the last game of the movie is a rain out. Is the, you know, the game is called for rain. It's a brilliant movie. It holds up. I watched it this summer. It is a fabulous gift. And I, I, I would say, if not my favorite baseball movie, because that could still be the natural, it's right up there. Now, I'm not a huge major league fan, but it was fun. It had its moments. Um, Bob Euchre is amazing in the film. And I actually think Major League Two... While not a good movie, has some legit laughs in it. And let's not forget, for all of his craziness and all of his, you know, real-life controversy, Charlie Sheen's a funny actor. All right, let's take a look at some other baseball films while we're talking baseball movies here. Uh, One of the big Oscar nominees for a baseball film was Pride of the Yankees, which came out, I believe, in 1942? 1941 or 42, I don't have it in front of me. Uh, It's the only film... To be nominated for Best Picture to feature performances by two future Baseball Hall of Famers. Bill Dickey is in the film playing himself, and Babe Ruth is in the film playing himself. Babe Ruth is great in the film. Babe Ruth, I mean, it's not a real stretch for him. He's playing Babe Ruth. You know, he's not playing Falstaff in the film, and he's Babe Ruth. But he's great in the film. I'm going to say something. Movie fans, throw fruit at me all you want. I think Gary Cooper's boring. There. I said it. I think a lot of great actors from that era are fabulous. Cary Grant, uh, James Stewart, Errol Flynn, uh, Jimmy Cagney, who else am I? I mean, people like uh, Clark Gable. All of them are great. I think I've always found Gary Cooper to be dull. And I think he's a dull Lou Gehrig. Uh, He was nominated for the movie. Teresa Wright played his wife. She was okay. Uh, Elsa Jansen. Let's give a Let's tip our hats to Elsa Jansen. She gave the best performance in Pride of the Yankees. She played Lou Gehrig's mom. Lou! Remember, she was so concerned in that, and then by the end, she became like a baseball expert. 
best performance in that. Uh, Fear Strikes Out, eh, it's, a, it's a well-acted movie. Anthony Perkins and Carl Malden are both great actors, but I defy you to show me a worse performance by an actor in terms of baseball skills <laughs> as Anthony Perkins uh, playing Jimmy Pearsall. Uh, the movie version of Bang the Drum Slowly is great. De Niro's fabulous in it. Uh, Vincent Garnidia received a Oscar nomination for essentially playing Casey Stengel. And it's wonderful that you get to see the old Yankee Stadium before the renovation in the film and Shea Stadium. Uh, Bad News Bears. You know, the original Bad News Bears, I never saw the remake. I have no desire to see the remake, even though Richard Linklater is a, is a talented filmmaker and Billy Bob Thornton's a great actor. I had absolutely no desire to see a remake of Bad News Bears. The original Bad News Bears, it's funny. I remember when that film came out. I didn't see it when it came out. But a lot of kids who were my age, like, it, I came out when I was like four. And a lot of kids I know when they're five, six years old saw all the Bad News Bears. And in fact, our little league team, we were all called the Bears based upon the Bad News Bears. So it was a kid's movie. It, it was about kids playing baseball. I watched, I didn't see the film until I was an adult. And when I did, they're, they're swearing in the film. They're dropping N-bombs, N-bombs in the film. There is no way you could have ever made the film that they made in the 70s now. It's very funny. It's still very funny. But it's of a different era. And if anyone ever says, you know, films today have so much profanity and it's so much so dirty compared to older films, I say, go watch the films of the 70s and the films of the 80s and get back to me. Go watch Bad News Bears. Try to see that film made uh, Oscar-wise, that the, I don't think I got any nominations, but Matthau starred in it. He won an Oscar pri- prior to that. Uh, Tatum O'Neill was in it, and she won an Oscar prior to that. And Jackie Earl Haley, who played uh, Kelly Leak, has gone on to be uh, an Academy Award nominee. He was in the film Little Children, which is a f- fabulous movie that came out maybe about five, six years ago. And he received an Oscar nomination for that. He later went on to play... Um, Rorschach in the Watchmen movie, and he's in Lincoln, which is a great movie. Quinn Smith, who played Lupus, was never nominated. Uh, The Rookie, that's a great film. Dennis Quaid should have been nominated for The Rookie. That is the best film ever made about a mop-up relief appearance. I saw that movie with Julia Sharp, who's now one of the uh, main writers of Family Guy, and I think he's doing some writing for the Oscars, if I'm not mistaken. We saw that movie in... uh, and we were both crying by the end of it. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to show my tender side here on the podcast. We were both crying. And yeah, I don't think you, could, you couldn't hold in your emotion when he comes out and he you know, faces Royce Clayton. And he's finally a major leaguer at his age. It's great. It's a great picture. Uh, and the director went on to do The Blind Side which is another good, solid sports film, I, which is probably bends the truth a little bit. I'm sure the rookie bent the truth a little bit, but you know what? It's a good story, and it's a, it's a really great movie. Um, the, what a, League of Their Own is a bit of a mixed bag for me. I, I like the films that Penny Marshall was making at that time. She did Big, which I think is a classic. Uh, she did Awakenings, which is a film I like. 
Uh, and Tom Hanks is good in the film. He's obviously good in the film. Gina Davis is terrific in the film. They're a good performance. But uh, the film kind of ran out of gas for me. And some of the changes they made in it from you know, changing some of the names and everything seemed kind of weird. I mean, I understand changing some of the players' names, but they, they didn't want to have it be Wrigley Chewing Gum, the head of the Wrigley Chewing Gum starting the league, and they turned it into the head of a Harvey Bars, Harvey Chocolate Bars. And so they go to the Cubs Stadium, and it's called Harvey Field. And I said, wait a minute, no, it's called Wrigley Field. What, what are you talking about? And that was one of those weird changes that kind of took me out of the movie. That being said, every scene with John Lovitz is phenomenal. John Lovitz, underrated comic legend. Uh, at the time, he was, in, he was in Saturday Night Live, I believe, at the time. He, all of his scenes, I wish the film followed him, quite frankly. Um, Fever Pitch, stunk. Slugger's Wife stunk. Uh, Moneyball was a good film. Came out a few years ago, got some Oscar nominations. Picture, screenplay, Brad Pitt got nominated, Jonah Hill got nominated. Ironically, the worst part of that film was Philip Seymour Hoffman. Now, Philip Seymour Hoffman's a great, great actor. And he's, he's great this year in The Master. He's nominated. And I thought it was a wonderful decision, even though he looks nothing like Art Howe. I said, oh, they're going to cast Philip Seymour Hoffman to make sure that Brad Pitt has a worthy adversary. That he's not going to just push someone around. They got a great actor to act opposite. And I just thought he was a pushover in the film. I thought he gave such little resistance and was a bit of a buffoon. And I thought that was a great disappointment. But Moneyball is a, is a good, solid film. One of the best baseball movies I ever saw, it was a film I thought I was going to hate. Uh, and it was a made-for-HBO film, 61, directed by Billy Crystal. Everything about that just struck me as, oh, God, this is just going to be a vanity project for Billy Crystal. This is going to stink. And I saw the movie when it came out on HBO, and I saw it again. And it's, it's, I think it's fabulous. I think it's wonderful. Thomas Jane and Barry Pepper, it's not just that they look like Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris, because they do. They look, they're the spitting images of them. But they give great performances, and you really, you feel for both of them. You feel for what both of them were going through that year. And, you know, as a Red Sox fan, watching a film about the Yankees, it was, uh, it was kind of tough to sit there and admit that I'm really loving it, but I did. I gotta give Billy Crystal credit where credit's due. That's some movie thoughts and some baseball thoughts. Thanks for listening to Proudly Resents. Make a comment or suggest a film at reachadam at mac.com That's reachadam at mac.com or on our comment line. You ready? Get a pencil. <laughs> I'll wait. Okay, got one? Okay. To call 646-481-5476. That's our comment line. 646-481-5476. Keep it clean and short. We might air it. Join us on Facebook or be old school and go to our website. 
ProudlyResents.com. If you like the show, put the episode up on your Twitter, Facebook, Stumble Upon, Dig, you know, all those things. Tell a friend, I'm Eddie Pepitone, and my Twitter account is at Eddie Pepitone. Adam, that, we're, we're out of time for this interview.